The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's open our Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 20. And I do want you to be prepared to worship the Lord today. His, his name is high and holy and it's lifted up. There is no name like his name because it is the name that is above all names. Jesus showed us how to pray beginning with hallowed be thy name. That's what he said about the Father's name. Now today we do begin the exposition of the third commandment. The first commandment told us that we are forbidden to have any other God that God is first, that He is the only true God. And I do want to emphasize that point. He is God who is known by one name. That name is Jehovah. Although there are many other descriptive names of Him in the Scriptures, yet this is the name, Jehovah is the name that is the self-identification of God. We don't confuse Him with other deities. He is Jehovah. He's not the same as Allah. Although there are many people who believe that Jehovah and Allah are just names for the same God. No, they are different. Jehovah is not Allah. Allah is not real. He is not a real God. Jehovah is the only true God. And he's unlike any of the other gods of any major religions. He is the only one and true God. Then the second commandment says that we should not make idols that represent God. That God is an infinite spirit. And his infinitude can't be captured by an idol. There's nothing made by human hands that could do anything but diminish the glory of God. And so God permits no aids for worship. That prohibits us from worshiping the true God in the wrong way. And today we come to the third commandment in verse number 7 of Exodus 20. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain... For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. There is a very strong warning that is attached to this command. Now most of us rarely recognize how serious that God is about his name. Along with the fourth commandment that we'll talk about in the coming weeks. These are very strong unequivocal statements of the holiness of and the glory of God. Neither of these can be treated lightly. It is serious. It is a wake-up call that God is not going to tolerate trivial uses of his name. A few weeks ago at the Democratic National Convention, there was a furor over a speech that was given by a Muslim father whose son was killed in the war in Iraq. And he spoke against Donald Trump, and he said that Trump had never sacrificed anything for his country. And Trump lashed out against him, which proved to be a bad mistake. If he hadn't said anything, perhaps that uh, speech would have gone away and nobody would have remembered it. But it's not in Trump's character to let anyone criticize his name. His name is plastered over many different products. He's very wildly protective of his name. He guards his name because the name stands for the man. The name is put in place of the man. And so if you use his name in a bad way, then you're speaking of the man in a bad way. 
Well, Trump could have let that go, but it's not in his character to let it go. And so he made a promise, and he stands by this promise. If you strike at me, I will come at you ten times harder, which we all know is the evangelical Christian thing to do. Uh, Isn't that what Jesus said to, to Christians? He said, fake left like you're going to turn the other cheek, and then when they're not looking, hit them as hard as you can. But nonetheless, the issue is the name. The name is important because that represents who you are. Now, by now, of course, we realize who Trump is. Unfortunately for the Republicans, he lives down to the level of the Democratic Party, which leaves us with dumb and dumber as our choices this year. And so many Christians have decided that dumb is just acceptable. Well, our subject today is God's name. The politicians with God complexes can't touch the name that is above all names. When you speak against Trump, he may hit you ten times harder, but I can promise you when you use God's name wrongly, nothing packs the punch like Almighty God. Now as we look at this third command today, the place that we have to start is with two words that are found in the first clause. These are the words name and vain. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. What does that phrase mean? What is in a name? William Shakespeare in his play Romeo and Juliet wrote a line for Juliet in which she said, what is in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And that line worked for Juliet as she said that the name Montague did not really affect who Romeo truly was. Well, that line worked for her, but it doesn't work for God. The name is who God is. The name is all the perfections of God. And a great issue in this command is the wide scope of it beyond what you might imagine. I mean, most of us are used to relating this command uh, to cursing and profanity and different types of bad language in general. And to us, that's the extent of the third commandment. And it certainly does address that kind of language, but it's far more than just talking about cursing. It's vast And it's possible to take the Lord's name in vain in many ways, in ways that you have probably never thought of. Now, in this in this message on the command, and and the next messages, I said I'm going to preach on uh, the Sabbath day next week. Actually, I'm not. I'm not going to preach that message until we get into October. We're going to continue talking about the name of the Lord next week. And in these messages, I want to acquaint you with the ways that you take God's name in vain when you might think that you're actually doing an excellent job of keeping this one commandment. Now, I keep telling you that all of the commandments are hard. They are demanding that you can't keep up with them. And you have to have complete reliance upon Jesus Christ as your surety to impute to you the righteousness of the law in keeping it in perfect obedience, a thing that you are never going to accomplish in your flesh. And so you might want to check off the Ten Commandments like you would some kind of a ten-step program or something and say, well, I've got this one down, now I'm ready to move on to the next one as if you can conquer that list and everything will be all right. But you'll find it's not all right. That's not going to work. That every one of these commandments is a lifelong project for you. You're never going to be done trying to keep these commandments. The list is always going to be there. It's always going to be incomplete. And until the day that you die, there's going to be a constant struggle in doing everything that God said to do in these commandments. 
And admittedly, sometimes you're going to be overwhelmed by that. Sometimes you're going to be discouraged about it. You'll get down on yourself. And you'll go and you'll complain to God and you'll say, I can't do this. It's impossible for me to obey you in the way that you asked me to, God. But I have good news for you. He already knows that. He already knows you can't keep the commandments. And that's why he gave us Jesus Christ. We must have him. You can't do it without him. We complete and we conquer this list only in him. And before this study is through, you're going to be thoroughly convinced that there's only one place that these commandments can lead you, and that is to the foot of the cross. Now, as we've seen in the first two commandments, we can't keep them to God's satisfaction. We'll find ourselves failing in this one as well. We put things in front of God. We have idols of our imagination. We often trust ourselves instead of God. And so as with the first and the second commandments, we'll look at this third one and we'll find out that there are myriads of ways that we can break it. The commandment is about God's name and the ways that we misuse it. The name is at the center of all of this. And when we speak God's name, it is to be holy. We should never profane it. And we're going to see the consequences of doing it. Now first, today, I'd like to discuss with you the principles of the command. And we're going to spend all of our time today on this one part, this part of the discussion. What does the Bible mean by the name of God? In Deuteronomy 28, verse 58, Moses told Israel, Fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God. What is in a name? What do the scriptures say about the name of God? Well, there are times that the scriptures use the name of God to represent his nature and his being. Ezekiel Hopkins, a 17th century English preacher, wrote, Sometimes it is taken for the nature and being of the deity itself, nor is it an unusual figure to put a name for the thing or person that is expressed by it. In other words, you'll note this on your listening sheet, that the name stands for the person. The name and the person are synonymous. Whatever God is as a person, his name brings to mind those characteristics of what he is. Now, for example, in Psalm 20, verse number 1, we read, The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble, the name of the God of Jacob defend thee. Obviously, a name is an inanimate thing. A name is a string of letters that you write down. A name doesn't do anything. And so it's plainly apparent that the psalmist meant that the name of God stands for the one who has the power to defend you. Likewise, in Psalm 115, verse 1, we read, Now unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name, give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. We are to give glory to God's name. What does that mean? Does that mean you write his name down and you put it up on a placard? That you write his name on a piece of cardboard or something? That you make a sign that has God's name and you glorify that? No, that's not what it means. It means to glorify the person who is represented by that name. The glory belongs to the one who the name represents. And so in that way, the name stands for the person. You can't separate the name from the person and have any semblance of understanding or meaning of this. I could keep giving you examples, but you don't need that. You understand what I'm saying. 
But there is still another example that I do want to give you that's clearer to us than spelling out a name. It spells it out better than we can do it with a pen and ink. And that's John 1, verse number 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. What does that mean? To believe on the name of Christ is to believe in the person of Christ. His name saves, meaning that Christ himself saves. And so to speak the name is to speak of the person. It's not just a word that you speak. And so you should know this, that when you speak God's name, it's not just a word. You speak of him. And if you use his name in a derogatory way, you are speaking directly about him. And you can't do that against the holy God. Now, I want you to get this. I want you to understand it. Before you open your mouth, when you speak God's name, you bring into view the person. You're talking about who he is. You're talking about what he does. And you had better be very, extremely careful about the ways that you speak his name. Because the name stands for him. Now, secondly, in the scriptures, sometimes the name of God is put in the place of the whole system of doctrine or teachings about God in the scriptures so secondly the name stands for doctrine in Hebrews 2 verse 12 the author quotes the messianic psalm 22 saying I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee Christ said to the father I will declare thy name in John 17 6 In his high priestly prayer, Jesus said, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Then in verse 26 he said, And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now in those instances he meant that the name stands for the doctrines of God. That he told the people that they would should worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And those truths were the rejection of the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus rebuffed the vain religion that those men held, and he revealed to his disciples the true doctrines of the living God. And so when he said the name, he's talking about the doctrine of the true, real God. Then in Micah 4, verse 5, it says, For all the people will walk every one of them in the name of his God, And we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And the meaning of that verse is that everyone that doesn't serve the true God will walk in his own ways. He'll walk in the ways of that false God. But the prophet said we are going to walk in the ways of true religion. And this is what he means when he says we are going to walk in the ways of the Lord our God. And you can see the difference in this in the verse. You have a little g and you have a a big g. Both of those are gods that people follow, but only the big g is the one that stands for the doctrine of truth. Now, I want you to catalog that information in your mind for a while. We will come back to it at a later time. And this is one of the ways that people are guilty of taking God's name in vain. If they are teaching something that God said and God did not say it, then they use his name to support a false doctrine. And in that way, they take God's name in vain. But then thirdly, the best sense that we have of this command given in Exodus 20, verse number 7, is this third way that God's name is used in Scripture. 
And that is, his name stands for attributes. God's name stands for attributes. Arthur Pink wrote, By the name of the Lord our God is signified God himself as he has made known to us, including everything through which he has been pleased to reveal himself, his words, his titles, his attributes, his ordinances, his works. Now note that, that God's name stands for every way that God reveals himself. Now I like what Pink had to say about the ordinances, that God reveals himself in the ordinances of the church. Those would be baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now we spent a good deal of time talking about that on Sunday evenings. We talked about the types that are suggested to us in the ordinances and they tell us about God. And that will help you to understand why we are so particular about the ways that we do this. About the ways that we baptize, the way that we baptize, the way that we take the Lord's Supper. We're very concerned about getting things, those things right. Because if we destroy the types that are in the ordinances, then we destroy God, uh, the truth about God in those ordinances. We have to do them in the right way. And so if you leave anything out, if the requirements that God says you have to have, if you do something that's wrong against Scripture, if we baptize people wrongly, or if we permit people to the communion wrongly, then we take God's name in vain. God tells us about himself in the ordinances. And so if we alter those, then we alter the true character of God. What God really is doesn't come through those ordinances. We can't see them. But among Pink's several points of uh, when he talks about that in that phrase that I gave you a moment ago, is this statement that he makes about God's attributes. That God's name reflects his character. Who is he? Well, his names and his titles reflect his attributes as well. The Bible gives descriptions of him as being eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, holy, just, good, merciful, loving, and gracious. And so when you use God's name, you bring into view these precious characteristics that define him as God. Now, that may help you to understand why I cringe when I hear the name of God on the lips of people, especially Christians, used in any other way than to praise God. Now, it's very bad for the lost to use his name in the wrong way, but they don't know anything about him. They've never met the one true God, so they're not going to honor him. But you as Christians, you have. You know him. You have a personal relationship with him, and that is humbling, or at least it should be. And so when you use his name, people are going to be able to tell whether your God is the God with the little g, or is he the God with the big g. What you think about God is going to depend on the way that you use his name. Now let me take just a few minutes to talk to you about some of the names by which God is known. Now first, we are acquainted with God as the Creator. His name is above all other names because he is the originator. All life comes from him as the creator. The ability to create shows his infinitude, that he has no boundaries. There are no limits placed upon the one who creates. Consider what Solomon said at the dedication of the temple. He said, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. God is above and beyond. 
There's nothing that can hold him. There are no fences that are built around God. There are no restraints that are put on him. He created the universe, which means the universe is not big enough to contain him. He made it. And so when you speak the name of God, you call up God who made the universe and the God who made you. He's the one who gave you life. And he's the one that can snatch it away from you any time that he pleases. Is it wise for you to trifle with the name of a God that is this great? Calvin wrote, The end of this precept is that the Lord will have the majesty of his name be held inviolably sacred by us. Whatever we think and whatever we say of him should savor of his excellency, correspond to the sacred solemnity of his name, and tend to the exaltation of his magnificence. Next, He is known as Lord. In particular, in all caps, L-O-R-D, his name is Lord. Now, the first two commandments introduced us to this name. It refers to his dominion, just as a king speaks of dominion, that by divine right, as the great I am, he is the ruler. Lord is a title. His name is Jehovah, the self-existent God. Now, there are many descriptive names that are given of God in the Old Testament. God continually revealed himself to Israel in many different aspects of his character by names that he gave them to call him by. And the Jews were so concerned about breaking this commandment, the third commandment, and using God's name in vain that they dared not to even speak it. When they came to the name in the text... They wouldn't use the name that you find in Exodus 20, verse 7. They wouldn't read it that way. Instead, they would substitute another name for it. Now, they had respect for the name of God. God didn't restrict the use of his name in the ways that they did. But we do know that the Jews were used to excessive applications of the law. Those were meant, I think, to prove more about their holiness than it was God's. But I think that we would have to say that it's far better for us to go to the excesses of the Jews in not even speaking God's name if we're going to speak God's name carelessly. So what they did was to use other names, substitute other names to guard this name Lord that's found in the third commandment. Now I want to give you some of the names as I continue that will help us to close out and nail down this point concerning the principles of God's name. For example, we find the name Elohim in the Scriptures. Elohim is the name that's in the first verse of the Bible. You remember, it's not until Exodus, perhaps 2,500 years later, after the creation, that God revealed himself by the name Jehovah. The first verse of the Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Or, in the beginning, Elohim created the heaven and the earth. Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. That verse reads, The heavens declare the glory of Elohim. Now that name is a name that signifies the might and the power of God. 25 times, or 2,500 times rather, in the Scriptures, this is the name that we have for God. And the sense that flows through all of these uses of Elohim is that utmost respect is due to the name of God, because he is the strongest one. He is the almighty, sovereign creator. Then there's the name El Shaddai. That's God Almighty. 
Now, perhaps that seems to be redundant because isn't that already covered in the name Elohim? That means that God is almighty. Well, it's not actually redundant because it's a more particular, specific name that's used for God concerning his almighty power. And it has to do with God as our provider. It's the sense that God is the many-breasted one or that he is able to nurture the many. That the whole world receives its nourishment from him. He, he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He causes the sun to shine and the crops to grow. He gives warmth. He provides food, shelter, and clothing. Those are the resources that you need for life. Food, shelter, and clothing. He takes care of the smallest sparrow. That never has to worry about where his food will come from. And so God said, am I not going to feed you, O ye of little faith? Are you not much better than sparrows you know that's a rhetorical question but sometimes i think that we should answer that god made man he made man the highest order of his creation he gave him dominion over all the animals god said to adam you have dominion over the earth have you ever heard this foolishness that people say well animals are people too who ever heard of such nonsense a crazy concept called animal rights That upsets the order of dominion. It blasphemes God who is the creator. Recently I saw a television program. A program of family was gathered around a table to eat Easter dinner. You rarely see anyone pray on TV any longer. I mean, it's not Andy Griffith that we're watching anymore. And so I was interested as the old patriarch father of this clan asked the family to join hands around the table and to pray before the meal. And I was interested, what will he say? And so they joined hands and he began, Thank you, Mother Nature, for this food. You know, I think that we often respond to God this way. No, we aren't better than animals. We evolve from animals. And Mother Nature takes care of its hunters and gatherers, its survival of the fittest. You ever heard the saying, Don't bite the hand that feeds you? This is exactly what we do. We, we come to our meals with no thankfulness of the one who truly gave it to us. Not even the smallest acknowledgement and thankfulness for the one who truly is God who gave us our food. So what do we do? We make Mother Nature, whatever that is, to be God. And that breaks commandments 1, 2, and 3 as quickly as you can snap your fingers. El Shaddai, the Bible says, is the provider. He's the one that gives life and breath and all things, and yet we curse him. We're not thankful. You don't have to put damn after God's name to curse him. All you need to do is give glory to something else besides him. Now let me stop here for just a minute. We talked about taking the Lord's name in vain. I told you there are two important words in this first phrase. I've described what... Name means, but what does vain mean? Have we gone this long and we don't yet understand what vain means? Now, I have a whole list of meanings for how we take the Lord's name in vain. That's going to start in the next sermon. And there's many ways that we didn't know that we were actually guilty of doing this. But in preparation for that next part, let's just talk for a minute about what vain means. Vain means to consider the name useless. It means of no account. It's to use it despitefully. It means evil. It means wickedness. It means falsehood, emptiness, vanity, nothingness. Vain is a horrible way to use the name of God. It's to say that these attributes that we've begun with here, or the titles 
that they're all that way, that they don't mean anything, that they're evil, they're false, they have no value to them. And that is just a serious thing. This is so serious to use God's name in that way. I don't think that the angels could look down from heaven in anything other than amazement that God does not step on us and crush us as bugs. Because in heaven, they dare not even think what we so brazenly open our mouths and say about God. Maybe you didn't think of it that way. They do. God does. The commandment says so. God is not going to hold you guiltless. We're going to get that next time. And you'll see multiple ways of breaking the commandment. But let's go on here. We see his creator. He is Lord. He is Elohim. He is El Shaddai. Another name that you find in Scripture for him is El Olam. That is a name that means everlasting God. Now, is that an attribute? Is he everlasting? Time never runs out on him. He made time. Forty times in the Old Testament, he is El Olam. Isaiah 40, verse 28, 28. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, feigneth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. Now you look at the string of titles in this verse. It literally reads this way. Hast thou not heard that Olam, Elohim, Jehovah, the creator? You see, it just keeps compounding. God never faints. He's never weary. He's the real energizer that never stops. The Bible says that our life is fleeting. It's like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Psalm 144 says, Lord, what is man that thou takest knowledge of him? Or the son of man that thou makest account of him? Man is like to vanity. His days are as a shadow that passeth away. There is an insurmountable gap between you and God. You, me, we're of no more substance than a shadow. Our lives are inconsequential. They're like smoke. They're like vapor. And then you're gone. You know, you're just a blip. It's, it's hard to get young people to understand this. They really don't understand this like those of us that are older. I'm amazed when I think about this. That yesterday, I was in the first grade. Today, I'm in my last years. What happened in that short interval of time in between? Soon it's all going to be over. My life is only a tiny blip that's on a timeline. Nobody's going to notice that I was here. I remember on that, that hike we had uh, up Mount Taylor, Taylor Mountain with the uh, young people. We got to the very top and... Of course, I was breathing hard, finally made it to the top, and the young people up there sitting and waiting, some of them. Others of them didn't show up for quite a while. But um, there, some of the young people said, they're sitting on a rock waiting. And I said, you don't realize what this is going to be like when you get older. Be thankful that you can do this now. Young people just don't realize how quickly that life goes. But, but I know that someday my life is going to be just a memory. The memory of me will be a picture over there in Bureau Hall. And as the time goes by, my name is going to, my picture is going to get pushed further and further down the list until finally I'm going to end up in the middle just like some of those men over there that nobody knows anything at all about. My life is inconsequential. As the psalmist said, who are we here today and gone tomorrow? But not so with God. 
The whole world, the Scripture says, will wax old like a garment and then God will fold it up and put it away and then you know what God will do? He'll go on in His infinite existence. He was here before me. He'll be here after me. He is the everlasting, enduring God. He's the God who outlives you. And so when you speak His name in vain, you speak of the God who outlives you. You can't harm Him. You can't stop Him. You are a bug. And so how stupid it is to break this commandment. Now sixthly, and I'll stop here, and this is the one that I'll stop with, and we could go to many, many more, and that is the name Adonai. This is the name that's most often substituted by the Jews when they wouldn't speak the name in Exodus 20, verse 7. And it's appropriate because it's a name that puts us in our place. It's the name that means master. And what it speaks of is the master-slave relationship. Now let's camp on that for just a minute. I tire of arguments that are made about the use of slave in reference to Christians. We don't like slave. Oh, we would much prefer the word servant. Now that's, that, that seems like that, that takes away less of our dignity if we say servant instead of slave. At least it leaves us with a little bit of insistence that we do have some control of our lives. And yet this is actually the terminology of the Bible. We are slaves to the master. Now, unfortunately, the King James obscures that somewhat, not intentionally, I don't think. At least the way that many people interpret it, it obscures it. It takes away from the meaning of the original text. Now, we think of slave, and, and this is the, the objections that we have against the terminology, is because we think of slaves like American slaves. Slavery like we had in America, where a man is treated as chattel, where he uh, is just a piece of property to be brought, bought and sold, just like a, a man would sell fence posts. But the Bible is not talking about slavery in that sense. Now, always, according to Scripture, there is worth that is attached to the soul. And that's because all of us have been made in the image of God. Now, of course, the Bible is very much aware of the American type of slavery. Uh, that Those kinds of things happen, but that was not permitted for the Jews. There were laws that governed this. In Israel, a Jew could not be captured and then forced into slavery. Now, what he might do, he might sell himself into slavery in order to pay his debts. Or because of a crime that he's committed, he might be put into slavery. But there wasn't any such thing as capturing a Jew and forcing him into slavery. And there's this peculiar law in the Old Testament about how a man might react to his slavery when it was time to set him free. You see, at certain times, in the seventh year, which was called the year of Jubilee, all the slaves had to be set free. But a man might decide that he didn't want to be set free, that he loved his master, that he wanted to stay with him. And so he would make his intentions known to his master, and then he would go before a court of law, and he would tell them his intentions. And then there was a particular sign that was placed upon him that the slave would go and he would stand next to a doorpost and he would place his ear next to the doorpost and his ear would be bored through with an awl. And that was a symbol that he intended to stay in slavery and that the master was not unjustly or unlawfully keeping him past the year of jubilee. And so he stated his intentions, I am going to be a slave forever. And that ceremony of having the ear pierced through with an awl was a great picture 
of the love that a child of God has for his master. That he wants to serve him. That he gives himself fully to the one who controls him. And so he gladly takes the part of a slave, but he's a slave nonetheless. His life is not his own. And so would you need to guess what would happen to a slave that had given up his life to a master who took very good care of him, who gave him what he needed, and yet he would slander the master who provided? Do I have to tell you what would happen? Well, the commandment tells us about that. It's not good. Now, let me show you something about the term slave. It has a twofold implication. First of all, that God is the ruler of his people. In other words, God owns the slave. Now, you can't get around that part. You can despise the term slave all you want, but this is what God, Adonai, means. He is the master, we are the slaves. Malachi 1, verse 6, God said, If I be master, where is my fear? saith the Lord of hosts unto you, that despise my name. His name is Master. And so the first implication of Adonai is that he owns you. The verse says that he's the Master. If he owns you, then how can you respect his name? And then the second implication of Adonai is that if he owns you, then you must expect your provisions from him. The slave doesn't own anything. The clothes on his back, the food that he eats... The place where he lives, all of that is provided by his master. And so if the master is going to keep the slave alive, he has to take care of all those things. He must feed, shelter, and clothe him. And if he doesn't provide all of that for him, the slave dies. And then he no longer has a slave. That brings us back to God's promise. God said, if I feed the sparrow, won't I feed you? Of course he will. And that's because the slave has value. The value is that the master has invested in him. He paid a price for him. He put his resources into him. He's not going to let his valuable possession die. And that's a picture of the relationship that we have with God, that he's the master, we are his slaves. He will not let us die because he paid the highest price that could be paid. The price that he paid was his own son's life. How is the master going to treat a slave that has that much value that he would give his own son to die for him? I'll tell you, he gives him everything. Romans 8.32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? That's what God says. But then God's not through, because the next thing that God does, we would never expect that he would do. Not for a slave. The next thing that he does is God adopts us as his own sons. And he says that everything that I own belongs to you. That you're going to come into the inheritance of everything that I own. And so now the slave becomes the possessor of all things that belong to God. And what slave is there who says, all of this is coming to me? This is all going to be mine? And so... I'm going to possess everything the master owns, and then I'm going to turn around and slander the master's name. Oh, there are great principles that are taught here. We don't have time to permit, or we don't have time that permits us to, to discuss them all. There's a world of truth that's open to us through this. The third commandment tells us what is so important about the name of God. Now, more to the point here, you might say, oh, but pastor, you're reading from the Old Testament. 
Adonai, slave, master. Slave-master relationships, that, that's Old Testament that you're talking about. We don't live in those days any longer. We're not slaves anymore. Well, yes, it is Old Testament. But it does have a New Testament counterpart. Adonai is the Old Testament Hebrew, but it does correspond to New Testament Greek. The same term in Greek in the New Testament is kurios. Do you know how that name is translated in the New Testament? Let me give you one verse that shows you. Colossians 2, verse 6. As ye therefore receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Christ Jesus the Lord. That is Christ Jesus Curios. Or if you prefer, Christ Jesus Adonai. He's the master. So the master-slave relationship is still true in the New Testament. And we might say that it's even more true because we understand it better in the New Testament times. Jesus said, Matthew 23.10, Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. So he's the master, and therefore we walk in his ways. So you, as a slave, are in great trouble when you slander the one who is your master. Now, do you see then how the name stands for the attributes of God? The name of the Lord is the person, and it's the doctrine. It's the attributes of God. It's all the ways that God has been pleased to reveal himself to sinful, fallen man. All of that is comprehended in the name of God. And so when you take his name in vain, it's not the name written on a piece of paper. It's not a word on a piece of paper. It's not the name of a self-aggrandizing politician. God is represented in his name. It's God in all of his essential glory. And so be careful how you use the name. Be very careful. Because God says, I will not hold him guiltless who takes my name in vain. The end of the precept is that the Lord will have the majesty of his name be held inviolably sacred by us. Whatever we think... And whatever we say of him should savor of his excellency, correspond to the sacred solemnity of his name, and tend to the exaltation of his magnificence. That is the name of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. We come to you, Lord, with respect that you're due. Lord, there's so many ways that we can break this commandment. We haven't even started into that part of the message. But we do need to understand that, first of all, what the name is, what it stands for, how holy that it is, how high, how lifted up that your name truly is, that it is to be glorified, that it ought not to be spoken in ways that would degrade you in any way. And may every time that your name passes our lips, may it be because... We are honoring you, we are praising you, and we are lifting you up to the glory that you deserve. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts about this terrible sin that so many commit. We look down the list of commandments and we may be proud of ourselves. We don't steal, we don't commit adultery, we try not to be covetous. There's so many things that we say that we do or don't do. And yet in this third command, we find that we are so guilty so many times that we don't truly reverence your name in the way that we should. 
And so when we come into a service like this today, when we hear the name of God spoken, our hearts should be lifted up to think about the person, to think about the attribute, to think about that everlasting, omnipotent, gracious, loving, just God who is represented in that name. And I do pray that every Christian would have their hearts opened up to that truth and hallow the name, sanctify that name in our hearts as it should be. Help us to do it, Lord. And the only way that we truly can, the only way that any person in this room can, is by knowing Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. Lord, if you're pleased to reveal yourself to someone today, to speak to a heart, to regenerate a lost sinner, Lord, we give you all the praise for that today. Speak to some hearts today. Draw Christians close to you. Reveal yourself to the lost. Lord, we ask for your blessing today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the things I said earlier this morning, I think maybe this was in form class, that many of the things that we preach here, people think, wow, that's so difficult, hard to understand. And they may not even come back because they think that what we teach is hard to understand. Anybody here have a problem with what I said this morning? Is this third commandment hard for us to understand? Well, we'll find out in some ways that it is because I've got all those ways to go that tell you how you can break the commandment. But basically, in understanding what this is all about and who God is and his name, we know this right now, don't we? We can't, we can't walk away from here and say, I can use God's name any way that I so please. To do it is to break the command. So we have to be very careful about that. Sometimes, sometimes we just say the name without even thinking at all. It's just a part of our everyday speech. But I'll tell you this much. Every Christian should be thinking about how he uses speech. In a bulletin article that I have coming up, this is one of the things that Jesus said. Every idle word that you speak, you're going to give an account of how terrible it is to speak God's name idly. You shall give an account of it. So, this is not hard to understand. Are we going to do it or not do it? Are we going to obey the commandment or not? And we can't just stand back and say, it doesn't matter. I can do this. It is a ten commandment. God gave it in tables of stone. You don't say, I'll just do it anyway. God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. At least get that much from the message today. If you didn't understand anything else, understand that. If you're guilty of it, ask God for forgiveness. Repent of that. Say, God, I'm not going to do it anymore. Help me to guard my mouth, keep my tongue, to use your name only in ways that you say that it can be used. That honors and glorifies God. Sing another song of a verse. God's spoken you in some way today. Just talk to the Lord about that today. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.